from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. August WASDE shocks the market as the USDA makes a surprising cut to corn. I think that's the big ticket item. It was a good three bushels below the average trade guess. There were also some surprises with demand. We'll have all the details. Beefed up demand took center stage at National Cattlemen's annual meeting in Nashville this week. As historic wildfires rage in the West, it returned to an area ravaged by wildfires last year. And it also destroyed our legacy. One rancher on a mission to spark change in a story of grit with grace. And in John's world, pork price possibilities. Now for the news, all eyes this week in the markets were on USDA's August update. And that update produced some surprises. Now, due to changing in recent years, the estimates that USDA released in the crop production forecast this week were based on farmer surveys, not physical yield checks. And the bulls running rampant with the national corn yield now projected at 174.6 bushels an acre in the latest report. That's almost five bushels below last month's trend-based projection. And it's also well below what the trade was expecting. Now, production, that's pegged at 14.8 billion bushels, down 450 million from last month. For soybeans, USDA now seen 50 bushel per acre yield nationally, down less than a bushel from last month and closer to what the trade expected. Production, it sets at 4.34 billion bushels. That's down 66 million on that lower yield. We're also going to break down these numbers even more in a roundtable discussion and talk about surprising cuts also to the demand side of the balance sheet this week. We'll also help you move the markets earlier this week. Some big export buys announced by USDA with ag purchases announced for six straight days. Take a look at the list. Highlights include three buys of 132 thousand metric tons of soybeans by China, including one yesterday in a 131,000 ton metric sale to the country last week. Four sales of soybeans to unknown destinations as well and a 182,000 metric ton sale of corn for delivery to Mexico. Well, getting ag products to and from China, well, that could be an issue. One port in China announcing closures due to a COVID outbreak. But the spot price container rates for the China to U.S. East Coast route, it spiked 500 percent from a year ago. And now the Federal Maritime Commission is launching an inquiry about it. The agency saying eight ocean carriers are being asked to provide details about congestion or related surcharges they have put in place. USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack applauding the inquiry on Twitter, saying that it did look like price gouging, adding that it's hurting farmers and businesses. Reuters reports a rebound in COVID cases has slowed container turnaround times at major foreign ports to seven or eight days. Typhoons off the China coast have also been blamed for the rise. Well, the balance sheet in the cattle market continues to improve. Farm Journal's Clinton Griffiths is at this year's Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA trade show in Nashville, Tennessee. Yes, thanks, Tyne. An in-person event here in Nashville as the cattle industry celebrates a much improved market situation developing this year. Now, according to the economists over at Cattle Facts, beef prices are near record highs driven by consumer and wholesale beef demand now at their highest point in three decades. Add to it strong global exports and weather concerns for producers out west and in the northern plains. Cattle prices are now forecast to strengthen in the coming months and through 2022. With 
record beef demand. You know, there's plenty of dollars. We just need to get more of them trickled down to the cow-calf producer, and we think that occurs. Tighter supplies over the next couple of years, or building some packing plants, adding some capacity. That combination should switch the leverage component back to the producer. Cattlefax CEO Randy Block telling the roughly 6,500 in attendance that the market finally working through the pandemic-related backup of market-ready fed cattle. And as supplies get more current, he expects the value of calves, feeder cattle, and fed cattle should increase several hundred dollars per head over the next few years. Time. Thanks, Clinton. Well, it's now up to the House to pass an infrastructure bill, and it could hit a roadblock after clearing the Senate. The Senate passing its version of the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill with 19 Republicans joining all 50 Democratic senators in support. That included Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. The bill includes more than $550 billion in new spending on roads, bridges, rails, ports, airports, as well as broadband. Half of that new spending will be on transportation. But the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said she won't allow a vote on the infrastructure package until a $3.5 trillion human infrastructure bill is also passed by the Senate, but that bill right now is unlikely to get any Republican support. Well, the 2021 Pro Farmer Crop Tour kicks off next week, and typically if it rains during crop tour, soybeans could be in for a bountiful year. So what does the forecast hold? We'll check in with meteorologist Mike Hoffman next. Find farm equipment on Machinery Pete's auction. Items close August 17th. Go to auctions.machinerypeat.com to register. No reserve, no buyer fees. Start bidding now at auctions.machinerypeat.com. Meteorologist Mike Godman joins us now with weather. Mike, the heat re-entering the picture this week, and the same week a year ago, the derecho hit. Portions of the country even seeing some straight-line winds again this year. Good morning to you, Tanya. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Thank goodness nothing like that derecho over this past week. The good news is that the heat's going to go away in parts of the country and we'll see some cooler temperatures. I'll show you those coming up. In the meantime, we are still very wet. This is the root zone from earlier this past week. So those of you that got inundated, southwestern Great Lakes, parts of Indiana, Illinois, into Ohio, yeah, you'll show up as blue next week when the latest root zone comes out. But you can see the wet areas all the way down into the uh, southern Mississippi Valley, even southern Texas, parts of Florida, parts of the northern Great Lakes, and hit and miss out west. But most of the west is on the dry side, obviously. Very dry. This has gotten worse over North Dakota and northwestern Minnesota, unfortunately, and very dry along the west coast. Western Pennsylvania and some of those surrounding areas, also one of those places that have gotten a lot worse, although... There were some thunderstorms around uh, late last week. Here's the uh, drop monitor. You can see it continues for the northern plains <clears throat> back through most of the west. It's improved a little bit over the past several weeks for the far southwest. And there's a few dry spots trying to develop in other places. But for the most part, a lot of those areas are wet. So here's the uh, jet stream. As we head through this week, we start off with a ridge out west, a ridge uh, kind of along the east coast, and the remnants of Fred coming on up. As we uh, head through this week, uh, that will get caught up and move slowly through the Appalachians, more than likely. That's kind of what we're thinking right now. But you can see the trough digs into the west. On Wednesday, look what happens. It slowly comes east. There's Friday. That's a cool down for the north central states into the Great Lakes as we head into uh, next weekend once again. So um, some models don't show quite this much cooling, but I, I think it's probably going to be some 
and maybe a fair amount of cooling in those northern areas. So here's Monday. Uh, there's the remnants of Fred, and again, that's an estimate. It becomes pretty diffuse as we head through the early part of this week, but there's going to be a fair amount of tropical moisture here, and that can put down a lot of rain, especially in the Appalachians. Just hit and miss stuff, as is typical for the uh, southwest southern plains system coming in uh, to the northwest. That's that cooler air. It's going to be kind of slow by Wednesday. It's moving uh, through the uh, northern North Dakota, South Dakota area. That would be some good news, hopefully, for some showers. Hit and miss activity southeast, still the remnants of Fred there. And then for Friday, uh, the cool front all the way down into the southern plains. That's cooler air uh, going all the way southward. Still uh, hot and humid off to the southeast of that with hit and miss showers and thunderstorms. Here's the third day outlook for temperatures. Hasn't changed a whole lot since last week. Below normal for the southern plains, above normal northeast, north central, most of the west. Third day outlook for precipitation above normal from the Great Lakes to the Gulf Coast. Back into the southwest, below normal, unfortunately, for North Dakota, eastern uh, Montana, on up into uh, west central portions of Canada. Tyne? Thanks, Mike. Well, USDA had that major report that produced some surprises this week. We'll break down that report in even more detail with our marketing analysts, Arlen Suderman and Joe Vaklovic, next. Well, welcome back this weekend. A big USDA report. Joe Vaklovic, Arlen Suderman with us to break it down. Joe, we'll start with you. A bullish support, major cut to the national corn yield. Was that the biggest surprise out of this August report? I would say so. I think that's the big ticket item. It was a good three bushels below the average trade guess. It was down uh, sharply from the July number. So yeah, that's the uh, that's the friendly number here. It's it's kind of the knee jerk reaction is to of course buy corn and and buy soybeans also because we had a lighter yield number there. There's going to be some questions uh, from a lot of people regarding not only the crop but also the demand side of the balance sheet. And maybe you want to ask that in a separate question. But there's some stuff that they did on this uh, new crop corn demand that I, I think a lot of people are going to have issues you with. Yeah, that's going to be at the cliffhanger. Wait for what those surprises were. Let's still focus on supply. Arlen, you know, we, we know that the drought is plaguing the north and the west. But believe me, when we look at this national yield and the national crop production number, Illinois looks like it's setting on a monster of a crop. At least that's according to USDA. Yeah, we saw that 11 point gain in the crop rating uh, last week. And that's probably reflecting that the crop was probably understated prior to that. And it was kind of a catch up overall. And Illinois looks like they're going to have a good crop. It's disappointing in Iowa and portions to the north and to the west of that. So, again, it's going to be the haves and have nots. But unfortunately, the haves are not going to have enough to offset the losses where they have not. And, and that's typical. Where you have drought, it's a lot easier to pull the yields down than it is to push them above trend. Joe, historically. Where do we go from here? Historically, does USDA tend to add bushels or take away bushels when we get into harvest? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, first of all, the growing season's not done. I mean, you can make the argument that the corn crop is is probably about where it's it's going to end up. We have an idea. The soybean crop is still a work in progress. Uh, USDA can still change a lot of things down the road. This yield number is not set in stone. I don't think the acreage numbers are set in stone either. So I think that today's report in itself in a vacuum, yeah, it's, it's friendly when you look at it on paper and you've got to take it at face value. But um, they could go up with the yield. They could go down with the yield. There could be late season weather implications. Um, all sorts of different things could happen. I mean, it's it's mid-August. It's it's not mid-October. We don't uh, know exactly what's out there. We have a better feel for it, I think, after today, but uh, we don't know exactly what's out there. 
Yeah, Arlen, and this report last year came right on the heels of that derecho that tore through Iowa. And we knew we didn't have an accurate handle of the crop then. But today, when you look at this national yield number that USDA put out, it was just based on farmer surveys, just based on satellite data. Is this a realistic number or do you think we will see major adjustments in the months ahead? Well, like Joe said, I think it just gives us a snapshot picture right now. And the September report will be built on totally different parameters. Yes, there will be a subjective farmer survey involved in there, but the objective field sampling will be involved and the crops will be more mature. If we look at the history of the August reports, we have seen pretty much a split over the last 28 years of the final yield being higher than the August yield or, or being lower for both corn and soybeans. But we've been in streaks. We've been going in streaks. And the recent streak has been more that the final yield comes in lower. But in the end, it really comes down to what kind of grain fill weather do we have? Is it very favorable or is it not? Is it hot and dry or is it cool and wet and allowing for depth of kernel? That's going to be the big key. And I think as a result, it probably puts a lot more emphasis on next week's Pro Farmer Crop Tour as not necessarily following the numbers out of each field or each state, but what are people seeing in the field? Are, are the field, are the kernels filling well? Are the pods getting big? Soybeans, the yield number came down. It was it was lower than expected at 50 bushels per acre. Not, not an extraordinary surprise. Uh, wheat was kind of interesting. And I think a lot of traders thought that we'd see this big downward revision to spring wheat because of the drought, uh, you know, in, in the Northern Plains, North Dakota, places like that. We actually did not see that. Uh, what we did see was a cut to the HRW crop and a huge cut to the projection for Russian wheat production. Uh, they went from 85 million down to 72 and a half, which is, is below what we've seen from even the private groups uh, in the Black Sea region, which is interesting. So there was some friendly stuff there in the wheat. It just uh, didn't come from uh, maybe the most likely source this time around. Well, we talked a lot about supply, but Joe mentioned it in the beginning. There were some adjustments made on the demand side that caught some traders off guard. We will see exactly what those cuts were coming up later on U.S. Farm Report. A proposition in California have some saying, where's the bacon? And it could spark change in how some pork is produced. Here's John Phipps. Although it received ample coverage in the ag media when it passed in 2018 by referendum 60 to 40, apparently pork producers took California Proposition 12 as far from a done deal. Well, a few did. An estimated 4% modified their facilities and are able to produce pork that meets those new standards. Prop 12 specified that by 1 January 2022, pork sold in the Golden State will have to meet higher standards of animal welfare, notably the elimination of crates and more room per pig. Hog producers in the Midwest especially are concerned, with one CEO predicting pork price increases of 50% or more. This seems unlikely to me, except in California. That state consumes 15% of all U.S. pork, Cut that supply by two-thirds, and you could certainly have astronomical prices there. But as hog market analysts consistently point out, pork consumption eventually equals pork supply, so that freed-up production will be absorbed by 49 other states. This suggests lower pork prices outside California as retailers cut prices to unload that sudden surplus. 
California may be doing shoppers elsewhere a big favor. Another wild card is the EU, which has been phasing in even more stringent standards since 1999. Powerhouses like Denmark could meet Prop 12 regulations today. Imports from such sources to California are not unthinkable given the likely no nosebleed pork prices that the shortage there could cause. Producers may have assumed that some political magic or court ruling would make this all go away. I have my doubts. The court cases and precedents don't seem to offer a lot of hope. For example, if the state of Texas can essentially dictate how all U.S. history textbooks are written because they are the largest market, why shouldn't California be allowed to set the bar for pork production? Meanwhile, what about those few in the pork industry who did take the voters of California at their word over three years ago and made the investments needed to comply? A case for economic justice could be made that they are entitled to even windfall profits from their foresight and considerable risk. Premium prices in California might be just what is needed to encourage and fund investments necessary for more adopters. If this regulation goes into effect as planned, it will be disrupting, but not more than producers and consumers can bear, and an issue markets will solve faster than many predict. Well, with the Field of Dreams game played this week, have you ever wondered what happened to the iconic tractor? Machinery Pete has that story next. Well, in 1977, John Deere 2640 was featured in the Field of Dreams movie in 1989. So what do you think that iconic tractor from the Field of Dreams movie is actually worth? Well, that answer was given on April 28th of this year when the tractor sold on the Hollywood Legends auction for $64,000. But before it sold, Machinery Pete was actually able to get the story behind the treasured tractor. This is the 1977 John Deere 2640 tractor that was in the movie famous scene with Kevin Costner giving his daughter a ride through the corn, chopping it up, making the baseball field. And we have a special treat here. This is the owner of the tractor. This is Donnie Lansing from Dyersville. Donnie, great to uh, come down and visit with you and, and learn about, uh, like I say, my favorite movie and, and your famous tractor. Now you actually bought it brand new? Yes, I did. I bought it brand new from Kelker Implement there in Dyersville. Remember roughly what you paid for it in 1977? Uh, probably in the range of nine to twelve thousand. Okay. And your farm is actually that's where the movie was filmed, correct? Uh, yes, it was. Uh, the movie was filmed there in 1988. Uh, Summer of '88. Yes. So that's your house in the movie. Yes, uh, I was born and raised there. Lived there all my life and just. Wow. Got a knock on the door one day and they told me they wanted to make a movie. And okay, now wait a second, Donnie. Who, now, who knocked on your door? Uh, the real area chamber of commerce. They were okay. contacted by the Iowa Film or by the Universal Studios and they told them what kind of setting they wanted. Sure. So they scouted around the neighborhood and they had a couple hundred farms that they looked at and yeah. mine was one of them. Now, what, what, would a Costner know how to drive a tractor when he, when he hopped on this thing? Uh, yeah, see, so pretty well knew all he had to do was get on and turn the key and yeah. turn the steering wheel and put it in gear and restoring it or anything just to uh, want to keep it original i want to find a good home for it some place in a museum or something where people can go yeah. and see it and kind of see it and remember the right. fun of the movie so you, you don't display the tractor out at the field no i don't i never really did i it's a 
whole new ballgame, you know, people getting on and off. Yeah. And Thanks, Greg, and we'll have more baseball history coming up. But first, as wildfires rage on, it's a story of a cattle rancher who lost nearly his entire herd that were grazing in the mountains last year from those fires. And now he's using his voice to spark change. It's Grit with Grace. That story is next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Grit with Grace is brought to you by Zoetis. Your dedication runs deep, and it fuels everything Zoetis does. To protect and support cattle and those who care for them, we are Born of the Bond. Learn more at bornofthebond.com. Well, drought and heat in the West are fueling historic wildfires. The blazes across the West are breaking records this year and in the worst way. Currently, a large fire called the Dixie Fire, which is now considered one of the most destructive in California history. Well, that fire forcing evacuations in Butte County, California this week, a county ravaged by wildfires just last year. And this week, it's one rancher who's making it his mission now to spark change. Surrounded by cattle in silence, Dave Daly's serene setting is now scattered with scars. It's really hard for me to go back and see it because um, there's so much history. As the California cattle rancher strolls this land in the Golden State, some of it has been ranched by his family for six generations. I consider myself an environmentalist. It doesn't have to be an either or. I love the wildlands, I miss it. The devastation of which he's reminded daily with barren land and charred trees. The scope of the August complex and the bear fire, as it began to explode, um, it obviously destroyed our Calvary. What started as a small fire on August 17th, 2020, reached the Plumas National Forest where Dave's 400 head of cattle were grazing on September 8th. They died tragic deaths. So in on fire, you know, running away and dying, collapsing wherever they were. Nearly a year later, Daly can't hide his emotions. As he says, the days the fire raced across nearby forests were bottled up in sadness, grief, and then anger. And there's times I feel worse for uh, the cattle that we lost. And clearly it's a huge economic impact, right? That's devastating. Yet other times it's thinking about the future that ignites frustration and grief. My granddaughter will never see that forest again. You know, the way it was. Neither will anyone else. You know, not in my lifetime. The fire didn't just torch Daly's livelihood. His family has ranched this area since the 1800s. And out of all the families who ranched this land, the Daly's are the only ones left. There were about 50 ranchers. We're the last of those 50 ranchers. I know all their names, all their history. They've all disappeared due to regulation, economy, politics. Nobody, none of them are in business up here anymore. We've survived that long. Survival is something it seems is ingrained in Daly, even as he battled the sorrow of losing his herd and decades of work. A part of the challenge is the cattle have to be adapted to the mountain range, to the climate. So it's not like we can go buy 400 cows, you know, which is essentially what we lost, and take them up there and turn them loose. And they wouldn't do well. They wouldn't know where to go. Immediately, Daly searched for changes to raising cattle in this area, all of which came at a cost. We've had to make some really dramatic adjustments. Not having a place to take those cows this summer 
We're actually feeding some cows in the summer, which I've never done in my 63 years of existence. So that's expensive, but you don't want to lose your genetic base. Some changes temporary, others may be permanent, as grazing 400 cows on what was once luscious land is something Daly doesn't know if they'll ever be able to do again. It's one that you think about at night a lot. The scars of this one fire daily fears will last for generations. I don't think people recognize the intensity of the fire. I've been up there and it's it's not there. And he says in a year or two, grass may start to grow back, but even then cattle living off the land will be a stretch. You know, um, credit to the United States Forest Service and Sierra Pacific. They both said that we could take some cattle this year if we chose to and we wanted to. It's the first break since, as I said, 1880s. Um, my mom's 90, I wanted to take cows up for her. There was nothing to go to. With fewer cows to feed, his sorrow has turned into passion. I've made a commitment that it's what I need to do. And frankly, I don't have as many cows to take care of right now, so I'm doing it. I'm putting everything I can into it. Fighting to save what's left, using his voice to create change. Well, I've, I've basically made a commitment that this is really important to me right now. From various leadership roles to testifying on Capitol Hill, Daly is making know the impact of California's wildfires that have ravaged millions of acres. But when it's starting to destroy their homes and they can't get insurance, and it's starting to burn towns like Paradise in the campfire or Berry Creek in this fire, then they start paying attention. Daly wants that attention to turn to a solution. As he says, pinpointing the cause creates a bigger divide. People who don't know want to spend time arguing about what caused it, right? You know, it's, it's, it's climate change, let's fix it. It's we didn't rake the floor enough, let's fix it. I'm really tired of people because they really aren't close enough to understand what, the really, what truly happens. With three kids involved in the ranch in various ways today, Daly's fight for change is selfless. You have to really be born into it and care for it. I know all three of my kids do. They're there, they got it. It's deep in their soul. You can feel it when you talk to them. Adaptable and resilient. He says that's how he and other area ranchers continue to survive, even as he searches for the path to rebuild and for the Daly's ranching legacy to stay intact. I don't know exactly what that path will be, but I'm not quitting. Neither is my kids. You know, we're just going to keep going. Now, Daly says the cause of the influx of wildfires across the West is actually a moot point, and pinpointing that cause is often what garners extreme views, and that creates even more of a divide. He says instead, the only thing that needs to be a focus now is finding a solution to stop the spread of the deadly blazes in the West. Well, up next, our marketing roundtables pick back up. The U.S. Farm Report continues in just two minutes. Find farm equipment on Machinery Pete's auction. Items close August 17th. Go to auctions.machinerypeat.com to register. No reserve, no buyer fees. Start bidding now at auctions.machinerypeat.com. Welcome back, Arlen Suderman, Joe Vaklovic rejoining us. Arlen, we talked a lot about supply in that first roundtable. A couple of surprises, really, when we look at this August USDA report. What about WASDE? Were there any adjustments made that also produced some surprises this week? Yeah, Joe mentioned earlier the big cut in Russian wheat production. The Canada was also cut down to around 24 million metric tons. 
which was more significant than what I think the trade was anticipating out of Canada, but not much cut for hard red spring. And we still need to have the biggest question answered there. What is abandonment going to be in the Northern Plains? And USDA really won't answer that until their spring, uh, their uh, small grain summer report on September 30th. So we're going to have to wait a while for that. But then when you look at corn and soybean global numbers, USDA cut feed usage for both corn and wheat, significant cuts in feed usage. So I guess our animals are going to say, hey, prices are going to be higher, so let's kind of cut back and diet here over the coming year and not eat so much. Uh, and so USDA really hasn't accounted for the lost export supply from Brazil since they've cut their crop from a, roughly 110 million metric tons now down to 87 million metric tons, which is where our team in Brazil has been for quite a while. Yeah, Joe, is that what you were alluding to? Is that what really raised some eyebrows when we looked at, at the feed side of that equation globally? Um, consider the U.S. export projection for the new crop marketing year at 2.4 billion bushels. They reduced that number because they typically reduce demand when they reduce supply. So they're estimating here that export demand is going to be below last year by a good 350 to 400 million bushels, despite the fact that we have the largest book of new crop corn exports on record, thanks to uh, early and very aggressive Chinese purchases of uh, new crop corn out of the U.S. So there are some things here that um, that you could argue on the demand side, certainly like like, you know, we haven't really hurt demand that much, especially in the case of corn exports, uh, despite the high prices. Yeah, and they, China's been on kind of a buying spree this week after a hiatus from any buying. We did see China come in and, and, and have some daily buys of soybeans. Do we need more of those in order to keep pace with what USDA has penciled in right now? Yeah, we uh, really do. <clears throat> oh, go ahead, Arlen. Yeah, we really do. And Chinese buyers have been waiting for ocean freight rates to come down. That's been their big complaint is it, they don't like paying $3 over the board in order to get soybeans or corn delivered. And that's been a big problem, but they're not gonna get very many soybeans out of the Pacific Northwest this year, especially not very early. And so they're gonna to have to get more from the Gulf and they were running out of time in order to get those soybeans out of the Gulf booked in order to get them shipped. So that's gonna help the demand for soybeans, those early harvested beans out of the Gulf, out of the Mid-South region, um, on to get on their way to China so they can have them by October because that's really where their slot is that they need to fill. There's still a lot of question about how soft that demand will be in the October, November time frame, but we do believe that they still need to make some significant purchases yet and anticipate that stepping up even more, especially if they could get a bigger break in freight. Switching gears a little bit, Joe, right in your neck of the woods in Nashville this week, National Cattlemen's Beef Association had their annual convention. Economists really painting a, a bullish picture. When you look at the strong demand, they're saying despite the increase in uh, meat prices that we see, we're still seeing record demand. Is that baked into what actually producers are seeing right now? Um, there's some better looking things on the horizon in terms of cattle prices. Uh, there's there's very, very wide spreads between nearby prices and deferred prices. Um, I'm sure that most of the people uh, at the cattle show this week are not necessarily thrilled with this USDA report today, which uh, resulted in a big rally in the corn market. But uh, in any case, yeah, the future does look quite a bit better. And this this rally in the box beef has been extremely impressive. Yeah, as cattle producers do look at these higher feed costs setting on the board right now, Arlen, do you think that these 
price levels here are here to stay, or do you think cattle producers may get a break in feed costs as we head into harvest? Well, a lot of that, of course, is going to be on how we finish out and uh, will we see the typical harvest pressure on the price or not. I think one of the concerns going forward in cattle market is we still got to look at that packer capacity. And when we look at the hog market, we've got to look at uh, the COVID in, in China where they're starting to have more restrictions, more lockdowns, trying to eradicate the Delta variant ahead of hosting the Winter Olympics in February. So China's numbers aren't that high for COVID, but they're taking very extreme measures that have a big impact, a negative impact on energy consumption and meat consumption. Yeah, and this week we even heard about a, a, a big port having some COVID cases and some issues there. Well, thank you, Joe. Thank you, Arlen, so much for breaking down these reports this week. Please stay with us. We have a lot more to cover on U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Well, cornfields in Iowa came to life Thursday as the Yankees and White Sox faced off for the first ever MLB game at the Field of Dreams, a tribute to the history of baseball and a history of agriculture that surrounds the iconic site. And to share another iconic piece of baseball's history, we travel the countryside with Andrew McRae. It's only fitting that in the area surrounding the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, you'll find some of the best trees for making bats. Kyle Crispell's job is to begin turning trees into bats that will get the hits that could put someone in that Hall of Fame. When the logs come in off the truck, it's about a 15-day process to go from the fresh log, you know, like out of the woods and on the truck to that billet there. The maple trees in this area of central New York are the perfect density for making bats. And these days, about 95% of the bats Kyle makes are fashioned from maple, with the rest made from ash and birch trees. While there are only three types of woods he uses, there are lots of options from there. We have probably about like 2,000 different styles of bats you could choose from, ranging from various diameters, you know, various lengths, diameters of the barrel, diameter of the handle. Kyle is the head bat maker for the Cooperstown Bat Company in Hartwick, New York. He receives pallets of wood cylinders called billets, each with the weight in ounces written on the end. Certain weights work best for specific styles of bats. He then uses his machine to transform that billet into the bat we might see in a major league game. Once the bat leaves Kyle's hands, it will go to the paint department. And then on to engraving, where it receives the company logo and perhaps the player's signature or other details. From the time the tree is cut to the bat ready for use can take about a month to go through all of the steps. Players buy their own bats and have several companies from which to choose. Kyle says it's a relationship business and this company works to stand out from the rest. But our process is different from others. Could be, you know, the way we treat our billets, you know, how we dry them in the kiln. Um, what we do, you know, our finish might be different from the rest of them. Cooperstown Bat Company allows visitors to come this here to see the bats made, and they have a retail location a few blocks from the Hall of Fame. Anyone can have a bat made, not just the major leaguers, but it's the machine that Kyle uses that perhaps is extra special. All the major league bats that you see played on national TV, those are all made on this machine. Regardless of who that player is, what team they're on, it's made on this machine. Kyle is turning bats for players on just about every major and minor league team in the country. And while he loves putting a good bat in the hands of any major leaguer, he's a lifelong Boston Red Sox fan. And he'll never forget making a bat order for Sox catcher Christian Vasquez as the team was in the 2018 playoffs headed to winning the World Series. I turned a couple bats for Vasquez on this machine. 
sent them to Vasquez and I watched him on TV use the bat that I made on this machine and hit a home run with it. That there was it. You couldn't, I couldn't ask for anything more than that. Those of us that are baseball fans love watching our heroes on TV every day, but all of those hits and home runs, many of them can be traced to this machine right here. Traveling the countryside in Hartwick, New York, I'm Andrew McCray. Thanks, Andrew. When we come back, it's a strong lineup of viewer questions with John Phipps. Corrections, additions, and omissions. As questions and comments roll in for John Phipps, he tries to get several answered in this week's customer support. This exciting episode of customer support will be dedicated to corrections, omissions, and excuses. From loyal viewer Peter Gadwa, after my comments about Chinese hog skyscrapers. Hi, John. Asian swine flu? I think you meant African swine fever. Well, as they used to say, let's go to the tape. Namely, Asian swine flu, which decimated maybe half their hog population in the last three years. And indeed, I did say that. I received a couple of chortles from others as well. When I talked about right to repair possible consequences, I used Microsoft Office as an example, stating you could not buy a standalone version and had to instead pay for an annual subscription. David Marshall in Lafayette, Indiana, pointed out this was wrong. My memory was skewed by the fact that I have three iMacs and two iPads. A standalone version would only work on one machine, requiring about 150 bucks, and not work on the tablets at all. Subscribing to Microsoft 365, a similar product for 100 bucks a year, would put more powerful software on all my machines. I do stand corrected. And yes, I do too need three desktops and two tablets. You guys sound just like Jan. From Craig Myers in Wauseon, Ohio, you ask for another example of big ag owned by China. How do you categorize Syngenta? Ooh, touche, Craig. However, the purchase of Syngenta by Kim China in 2017 has not gone well, and I had just finished reading about the likely IPO to sell Syngenta to public investors. I debated at the time, but now agree I should have included it. This is also a good time for the periodic reminder that U.S. Farm Report mugs are not for sale. They're given free to viewers who send a question or comment I use on the air. And if I owe you one because of that, please remind me my shipping department is not 100% accurate. Finally, to the anonymous viewer who asked, is John a Star Trek fan? Gee, whatever gives you that idea. But more than the shows, it was the idea of a future where technology had made lives better, in which I still believe. This perhaps childish attraction also makes it easier for my family to buy presents for me. Thanks, John. Well, one year ago this week, a derecho blasted across Iowa, and a year later, many are still trying to rebuild. We'll have that story in From the Farm next. Well, a year ago this past Tuesday, a derecho blasted across Iowa, flattened millions of cornfields. And a year later, as producers try to get a grasp of crop production potential this year, rebuilding is still taking place. 
Cornfields flattened, grain bins tangled, machine sheds ripped to shreds. Sure, sure caused an awful lot of damage. We are estimating that there was probably right around 6 million acres in Iowa that were affected to some degree. But today, the crop outlook is better. We got a very good stand, so you know, I, I still think we could have a, a really good crop with the right weather. But as farmers gear up for harvest, some grain bins still haven't been touched. There's been a lot of rebuilding done in the area, but there's there's still plenty to do, and uh, we're, we're hoping to get all that done before harvest. Small issues, but constant reminders as farmers are dealing with the aftermath one year after the derecho damage hit. The path of damage was just unbelievable. and uh, No, there's no way you're ever going to forget that. And last year, just days after that derecho hit Iowa, the Pro Farmer Crop Tour was able to ground truth some of those early estimates. And that crop tour kicks back off on Monday. Join us next weekend as we have a complete rundown of exactly what those scouts saw in the fields this next week. That does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to join us again next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.